0: hello and welcome to furloughed defining moments worth talking about I'm your host Leonard Cochran and Steve otterstrom is with me today how are you doing today Steve
1: as always I, I always say I'm doing well um, I think even if I weren't I'd probably still say so so <laughs> <laughs> well good good to hear you're doing well then we'll, we'll take exactly. that as an answer how are you doing I know Do good I, <laughs> I know you've had a, a bit of a week
0: yeah yeah it, it's little interesting. So I I did find out, uh, oddly enough, the same day as Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, my uncle passed away. So they both passed on Friday and uh, I was doing some gig work at the time. So I didn't find out until much later in the day, really about either of them. But needless to say, uh, his, his death is a little bit closer to me than hers. And uh, that being said, you and I talked some prior to beginning the recording. So just a heads up for our listeners, we're, we're actually going to go ahead and talk some about that. So we'll, we'll talk about both the two of them and a little bit about uh, the legacy we want to leave behind. And so it, it feels more like a Halloween episode, but it just seemed appropriate uh, with her death that we just sort of reached this topic right now. And so uh, just a heads
1: up. So. Yeah, this, this is going to be a downer episode. Maybe, <laughs> well. maybe it'll be an up or two. I'm, I'm hoping we find some redemption in it. But yeah, certainly um, it, it's a difficult topic that we all are going to go through one way or another.
0: Yeah, well, one of the reasons we do this podcast really is about talking about change and how we cope with change. And I don't know if there's any bigger change in our lives oftentimes that happens than the death of someone we know or or are near to and how it impacts us. So uh, but just uh, uh, did you want to say a word about RGB? Uh, And I always it's to me in the computer world, it's it's. It, those are monitor colors. So I'm really not comfortable <laughs> calling her that. Um, yeah. And I, if you just call her Ruth, it's like, who is Ruth? So I, I, yeah, Ruth is my mother-in-law. That's, so, that's yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So RBG. Uh, yeah. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Ginsburg. Or, I, I'm never
1: yeah. quite sure how the, the, you know, the proper pronunciation, but, you know, I, I think that's, it's one of those things. And I'm, I'm certainly not the, a person that would be in a position to eulogize her other than, you know, I think for many uh, people, she was definitely seen and continues to be seen as um, both in her legal career prior to becoming a Supreme Court Justice and, um, and then as a Supreme Court Justice. Uh, you know, sometimes people get upset when they're like those activist liberal judges. <laughs> um, yeah. And of course, you know, whether someone is an activist or whether someone is uh, actually progressing society, it has a lot to do with the perspective of the person who's watching what's happening uh, but certainly she was someone who um, was an advocate for um, immigrants she was an advocate for women's rights um, and I think in in many ways you know our legal system and and I, you can argue that no it's not this way but it's just it's just a reality I'm not trying to critique it it's just the truth is, from a civil perspective, so civil law, you've got criminal law and civil law, there's only one legal system, and it's one that is for the wealthy, that uh, for the most part, unless you have a real major claim, if I get upset with Leonard, I, I could not afford to take him to court. Uh, Leonard, being an extremely wealthy man, <laughs> yes, <indeed. laughs> still would not be able to afford to take me to court, and so uh, we settle our differences outside of court, for the most part. Um, but when, it, but really, in that in that civil world, it's it's always been the system for the wealthy. And when you come to the uh, criminal one, we have two different systems. We have a system that uh, benefits the the status quo, and then we've got a system that does not benefit uh, those who um, are maybe on the bottom end of society. You know that if you have money, you will have a legal defense. If you don't have money. A court-appointed attorney will help you get a plea bargain that you might have been able to get on your own anyways but uh there really isn't a good legal system for people without resources and i think that's part of what her legacy was um was in tearing that down just a little bit and in equalizing some of those those items and of course you know if you get into reproductive health uh, that's where people are most concerned right now on both sides of the argument Um, One of the things just to kind of let our um, international uh, outside the U.S. listeners know about what what's why this is so important um, Um, to people in the United States is the issue of abortion. And uh, because our Supreme Court justices are appointed for life, when someone gets put in that position it's a lot easier for them to maybe take a political stand that they wouldn't take otherwise because they'd be afraid that they would be voted out in the next election. And, um, Oh, going back in 1970 something landmark case case Roe versus Wade, uh, was, um, decided in a five, four decision at that point saying that States could not inhibit the right of a woman to have an abortion during the first trimester. Sometimes people bring up late term abortions, but it has zero to do with Roe v Wade because Roe v Wade actually allows states to create laws that would um, inhibit that. But here in the United States, there's a there's a big push on one side, they say we're pro-choice, pro you know the choice of a woman to make a decision uh, for her own reproductive health. On the other side, you have I am pro-life. I am for the life of this unborn child, um, even in the in the first trimester of pregnancy. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a hot button topic. It's something that yes. people campaign on. Um, I personally feel that neither side has any vested interest in winning because it makes them so much money when they want to campaign that they can come out and say, <laughs> yeah, our side is so important and, and people will put a lot of money into it. Um, but that is why there's this concern is because her being considered one of the liberal judges, it does create an opportunity for that case to be revisited um my own personal opinion and i think a lot of legal scholars would look at this and say you can appoint people to the court but they actually don't end up being liberal or conservative (laughs) maybe in their first year but they kind of settle into their own and it ends up being a hodgepodge of both and i think the court opinions actually support that as well what are your thoughts leonard
0: yeah, no, fully agree, Steve. Uh, definitely, it it is a big topic. I mean, my gosh, uh, Friday evening, they were already announcing that they would be looking for a replacement and so on. And, and it so it, it seems as so though so. there's a push to rapidly replace her uh, because of the abortion issue specifically. Uh, but to your point, there's been many people appointed in the past by conservative presidents by liberal presidents, and when they put those people in the Supreme Court position, they ended up not necessarily getting exactly what they had hoped they would get in the end. And to your point, it's a lifetime appointment, and I'm sure that's why it is a lifetime appointment. So people can have the liberty to speak their mind and interpret the law as they will without repercussion of being voted out or fired or whatever the case Mm -hmm. might be. So, But yeah, so nonetheless, though, she has passed away and left quite a legacy, it's my understanding. Um, I've not done a lot of reading about her, and I'm not the history guy out of the two of (laughs) us, obviously. Uh, But I do know, uh, I I read something, heard something where it was um, prior to even being appointed to the court system uh, that she had argued, I believe it was five or six cases before the Supreme Court, and one it, it, it was either four out of five or five out of six cases she had won for women's mm-hmm. right prior to even ever sitting on the bench of the Supreme Court. So, certainly a woman that has made a big mark in the American culture and in our society, and so a lot of people certainly paying her homage and respect for that. I think and even, then, uh,
1: you know, almost any woman that goes into uh, the legal field, you know, it's almost like mandatory that she be an idol because she has has really opened up what was a men's club um
0: absolutely yeah i was reading a little bit on it just in preparation for today uh and recognize i she was one of six women in harvard law school the 500 attendees and she was one of six women and so uh, we're talking in the 70s late 70s early 70s rather um you know, so it was just an almost unprecedented time for a woman to be in that field, much less make the marks that she has been able to accomplish during her time in in those posi- varying positions she's held in the legal system and education system. So,
1: yeah, interesting times. Well, and I, I think it kind of goes into kind of where we were going to talk about today is is really about. We all know that there's an expiration date. You know, yeah. I, I've checked my milk jar jug and I cannot <laughs> find where it's printed, but, um, <laughs> but we know it's there, it, it, you know, and it is, it's interesting even when like I go through a cemetery or, you know, and being a history buff, I, this is, this is Steve's own little weirdness. I love going to cemeteries because I, I, I feel like I can kind of get a sense for the history and the lives and the people that were there, even though it's through small clues on headstones, through children, through how maybe headstones have changed over the years. Um, but I've, I've always, um, (laughs) enjoyed doing that and, and trying to connect and wondering, you know, what, what is the legacy that this person may have left or the other may have left? I mean, there's to quote the great Garth Brooks, he said, you know, in one of his songs, there's, uh, two dates in life that they'll write on your stone and everyone knows what they mean. But what's more important is that little dash there in between, you know, and that, and that's kind of where we're at, you know, in that little dash, we know we've got, we know we've got an beginning, we know we've got an end date, but what do we do with that time and what's the mark that we left? And you look at someone like, you know, um, Ruth Gator Ginsburg, who of course she left a a legacy that will be much greater than I think the uh, furloughed co- podcasters uh, legacy will ever be. <laughs> but yet I want to believe that my life has meaning, you know, and I want to also recognize that there are so many people that really have made an impact on our lives. We don't know their names, but the impact is there, you know, and so I think it's interesting to kind of take the two side by side in that your, your uncle died on the same day Yes, As, you know, this major public figure, you know, there are people mourning on both sides and, and maybe let's, let's move away from the celebrity side and let's move to the ones that we know best and, and, and maybe tell us a little bit about how, how are you dealing with, with the passing of your uncle? What, what, what is, what is, yeah? what are your emotions at this time? I mean, and of course, feel free to say you know stevie (laughs) there's some things (laughs) i'll share you out (laughs) exactly exactly because i know this is a difficult time death is always a difficult time it yeah it's a time of reflection a time to to ponder but and there's almost to some degree and i for lack of a better word there's almost a, a beauty to it in that there's this this opportunity to view ourselves as part of something that's uh, larger. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I'll stop talking and let you make that <laughs> out of what, I was, what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, and just, and just a quick comment, too. You, you hit on uh, a Garth Brooks song, which I, I was unaware of the song, uh, not being much of a country music person or a historian, obviously, now I'm beginning to slowly reveal myself to the audience here. <laughs> uh, but I have heard a poem before that was called The Dash. And that is what Garth Brooks is referencing in that song. And just a quick look shows that's by Linda Ellis. And so I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, it's a very neat poem. I don't think we'll take the time to read it here as we record. But it is definitely, it talks about the dash on the tombstone between the the birth and the death of an individual. And so yeah, so for me personally, it, yeah, we, we drove up Sunday. It was a graveside service. Um, There were more than 10 people there. I know COVID has uh, sort of limited to 10 people here or there. But I I think we're in the minds of the community in this area of the country. We're sort of almost post-COVID, although it's still very real. uh, But it's a little more relaxed and and purely uh, a lot of mask wearing. But that's about it for the most part. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, we we drove uh, a few hours to his funeral, two and a half hours up to his funeral graveyard service and just a short one. But more so than the the personal impact, I mean, certainly I will miss him. He was one of my uncles I was closer to. Kind of got to recognize, too. My dad had, other than himself, uh, there were 15 other siblings. uh, So there were 16 in all. And wow. so <laughs> I, I, I struggled to name all 16 of them my entire life. It was always a bit of a competition to see if we could not name all eight boys and name all eight girls and especially get them in order. And uh, so I, I still struggled to list all 16 of them. Um, no disrespect to those that I can't recall, but uh, they, you know, his his oldest siblings were as old as what my grandparents were on my mother's side. So. Didn't have a lot of contact with some of them yeah. along the way, but nonetheless, we're in the we're in the lower numbers. We're in the smaller batches of kids. Uh, there were three sets of children, uh, three different mothers involved, all with the same father. One of them being a half uh, sister. She she literally had a different father and was married in, so she was only literally physically related to uh, three or four of the children, uh, and they were her. Her half siblings, because they shared a mother rather than a father, um, but yeah. So my uncle Wayne, though he's I I have his hair, uh, which I'm a bald individual, and I also have his chin. He had a, a sort of a dimply chin, and uh, so beyond that, he was a mechanic and did a lot of things that I wouldn't be able to do. But he was a good guy. But what was most interesting to me, Steve, though, is uh, just. Being there and, admittedly, it, the distance, the drive to see the family. It's been a number of years since I lived in the community where he lived and things. Um, so I, I'm not as close as what a lot were, but it was just kind of interesting to watch the process itself of the, the funeral service and as i was there just sort of looking at some of the rituals and some of the practices that we have for the service itself um, graveside service still had to have pallbearers so the pallbearers just walked from the car or the hearst up the hill to where the gravesite was well you know he they could have had him sitting there when we got there i guess since we knew mm-hmm. what time to show up uh but you know they still had the flowers on their shirt and uh Needless to say, you know, brought him up there. A uh, couple songs were sung, and it minister. it was pretty informal over by and large compared to some funerals I've been to, and in part could be because of being outside. And uh, there were two tents posted, one with seats under it for uh, the siblings and some of the uh, immediate family to sit under. And then the second tent for the rest, the like myself that wanted to avoid getting sunburn on top of my head to gather <laughs> under. And then the rest of the folks gathered around. But uh, the minister just, it was a very nice kind of informal conversational type of a sermonette that he provided. And of course, being a Christian funeral, uh, speaking from scripture and um, flipping through a few verses here and there. Um, so it was just kind of interesting to, sort of think about the ritual that we go through itself when a person dies uh but more importantly though I, I really i i think what the most significant thing though is thinking about legacy uh and you you hit on that already and so what is the legacy and you know for me you know my uncle's legacy is going to be different than a number of other people and that's one of the kind of funny things about legacy even with uh uh rbg you know we talk about her legacy it depends on whom you speak to as to what that legacy is because i know Mm -hmm. currently in the wonderful politically hot world we're in some people are quite excited she's gone because that means Mm -hmm. an opportunity to put a conservative judge on the supreme court and then of course other people are deeply grieving not because they knew her as a person but because of knowing her political views and what she had fought for and so again, it's, it's perspective becomes so important to how a person views it. Um, so I, it, it, gives thought to me, it generally, it gives thought to my own life, you know, and, and what my own legacy could be, which e- even being alive, I think we have a legacy, right? Mm-hmm. So um, just give some thought to that. Well, it's so,
1: interesting. Like we, we yeah. believe life needs to have meaning to it. You know, and I've even heard it from the perspective when somebody's life has been in danger, but then they they miraculously survived and they say, I have something else that I'm supposed to do here. That's why yeah. I'm alive, you yeah, know, greater that, that I still now. had some some purpose mm-hmm. that I hadn't completed. And and yet I've always had trouble with that because I've known plenty of people that I felt had had. <laughs>
0: Yeah, had
1: something left. You know, I I remember when actually, um, you know, my 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 father um, lost his dad when he was pretty young, he was they lived in a coal mining town in southern Utah. And that was just a very common thing to lose. Um, He said he wasn't the only one on the block that on every single block in their little town, there was at least one coal mine widow out there and Um, I remember we were at another funeral and it was for someone who was young and um, had um, a son as well. And there was some sort of comment made about God needing to take home um, this, you know, this young father uh, that he, there was some higher purpose. And, you know, my, my dad who's pretty soft-spoken that doesn't usually, usually interject himself um, into other people's business he say well I lost my dad when I was young and I can tell you God didn't have any greater purpose for him than I did
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah you know <laughs> that, yeah and and you know but we we would I can understand it, from both sides there's this this feeling that life has to have meaning but it doesn't seem like the universe really cares you know yeah <laughs> Well,
0: yeah, and I think it's our our feeble attempt to try and put some meaning to it, you know, because uh, um, I I don't know exactly why we immediately bring God into it, other than we are thinking about the eternal, obviously, uh, or questioning it when when a person dies. Um, but. You know, what kind of God would be be serving if one human being was going to make or break what was happening in the heavenly realm? So it's a, <laughs> kind of an interesting outlook. But even too, you you know, in mentioning that, I did actually even hear it said, uh, not not from the sermon itself, but just some of the casual conversation around uh, a, as we sort of dispersed after the service. And somebody said, "Well, we all have our appointed time," and mm-hmm. it, it, it again, you know. <laughs> When, when you think of, you know, the not to be ugly, but seriously, if you if you think about a, a three-year-old child getting killed or you think about some of these kind of things and, and you kind of wonder really, did they enter the world with an expiration date that was predetermined or is it just a uh, happen circumstance of living in a, a world like we live in?
1: A and, tragedy, uh... you know, just <laughs> tragedies couldn't exist if everything was predetermined, you know, and and i think that that's that's really one of those elements of dealing with grief is just acknowledging tragedy. Yeah. You know, I i have been so fortunate that i have never lost a child. But i have been near people who have gone through that grief. Mm-hmm. And um and there's just nothing like it. There's yeah. there's and there's no there's nothing good <laughs> about it. There's no, you know, <laughs> God needed a little baby up there, you know, or they need, yeah. you know, it, yeah. it, it, it's just horrible. And it's just, it, it, there. there's not a, there's not a silver lining uh, for yeah. those types of things. And I guess I say that and then, you know, maybe somebody needs that silver lining and I'm not the person to say there isn't one, you know, but from my perspective, it's just some of these things appear to be just complete tragedies. and And if there is meaning, it's in what do I do? with that tragedy. You know, like, I think of uh, several years ago, um, there was a a young woman that I, I I, I knew her family better than I knew her. But uh, I knew her family very well. And I was with her family as they went through or or I, I wasn't physically with them every moment of it. But I I was, um, I was very involved. As she died of cancer, you know, and she was mm-hmm. too young to die of cancer, you know, and um, I don't feel like there was necessarily this meaning like this is just what had to happen. She had to die. No, she was too young for that. But if there is meaning, it's what do I do with that? You know, when, when yeah. I get that cancer institute um, <laughs> invite to donate some money or to walk for the cure or to, you know, what do I do with that? Um, or do I just become more empathetical to people who are suffering? Do I, do I hug my kids a little tighter? I think we've all had those experiences as well, where we, these tragedies happen and it just reminds us, and that's maybe the meaning we get out of it is that we hold on to what we have a little tighter, you know, and, and cherish the moments that we have a little longer.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, uh... For me, I, I can't help but uh, sort of think of what I've heard as far as Victor Franco's writing. Uh, you know, he's he's the uh, well known author for Man's Search for Meaning and the whole concept of, of uh, the creation of logotherapy and what that is. And essentially, just distilling it down super simple, uh, kind of the way he explains it as being a survivor of the Holocaust and observing the, the horrific experience of being incarcerated in one of the uh, prison camps there, and some folks would somehow survive where other folks would readily die, and, you know, the, he was trying to figure the rhyme or reason, uh, but in, in a nutshell, though, for our purposes, basically, my understanding is the way it's summarized would be that uh, all of us need to find meaning bigger than ourselves to give us reason to live and without finding a larger meaning than ourselves, then we can easily give up the desire to live. And I recognize, you know, (laughs) Holocaust (laughs) and a lot of these situations, our desires are not necessarily involved, but we can survive a lot of affliction and we can survive a lot of pain if we have the thought and belief system that there is a cause bigger than our own and that's uh and and to me that I, that is really kind of where i find myself as well as that's the camp i land in and knowing that you know I, w- I would like to think that life itself is more meaningful than my individual life is that there is something bigger than myself and by making a contribution to the bigger cause it provides value in my own life, and therefore affirms that expiration date as being um, that mortality as being a little more acceptable and knowing that you're, you're moving towards building something bigger than yourself. And I think that's kind of the, the legacy that I hope plays out in my own life. Um, you know, and sadly enough, being 56, I, I do Sort of think about that a little bit more frequently than I did, I guess, when I was in my 20s. I I knew what I wanted to build, quote unquote, build. Uh, And and of course, in my 30s, I had an early midlife crisis and realized, you know, I'm not going to build that after all because I'm nowhere Mm -hmm. near it. Um, So now I just keep telling myself, you know, Colonel Sanders started at about 65. So I've still got time (laughs) Just play my cards right. Well, uh, but it is it is it is something that i'm occasionally conscious of not it doesn't totally drive me but it is something i'm conscious of
1: well, when i was younger you know my plan was to, just simply to grow up change the world you know <laughs> and and then and then when i die there'd be a great monument to me and you know and 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 i think that's one of the the challenges is as we talk about you know death is the death of of what we thought we were going to be too you know as as we try and find that that search for meaning, you know, originally I was going to change the world. I was going to, you know, make everything right. And now it's kind of like, I'm at a point in my life where, you know, like you, it's, as we cross the halfway mark, um, realize that's just not going to happen. You know, that, that, that if, if I'm to make an impact, it's going to be much closer to home. It's Mm -hmm. going to be with my own family, my own friends. It's going to be, You know, helping the person that's in arm's length and not curing the entire world. And I think one of the things that's interesting is we culturally have this perspective that great people did these great things that affected everybody. Yeah. And the truth is, probably the the biggest impacts that have happened in our lives um, were done by people, you know, long forgotten. You know, like I think about my, my own grandfather um, on my mother's side and, you know, he grew up in Southern Utah and he was, um, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a real conservative community, but yet he was the kid who, um, whose daddy wasn't around anymore <laughs> and mm-hmm. he had several bro- brothers, but they weren't all from the same father and that was definitely looked down upon. Um, and um, he talks about when he was a kid, he just ran around town doing his own thing, and and how he and his friends would get together and they would you know steal a chicken from somebody's yard and then they'd go up in the mountains and they'd cook it and they would they they were kind of living that carefree life, getting drunk a lot, smoking and all those things. And um, then when he was 13, you know, um, his mother died, and in his mind, it was she died because um I was such a bad kid. You know, the heartbreak was too much for her. And so, uh, you know, it, it devastated him. Hmm. And yet he's also so now he's, he's, he's an orphan, he's 13. Um, You know, this is in the early 1900s, you know, probably I'm guessing trying to think what year he was born in, but it would have been around 1920, 19, 25, 1930, somewhere in there. And um, so there's not like a lot of social nets to catch him. Yeah. And, and really the story should have been at that point that um, he went off and did something dumb and died and nobody ever heard from him again. But somehow he found his way to Reno, Nevada, and he was scooped up by this guy who ran a little grocery store, and he taught him how to make milkshakes, (laughs) and uh, he he said he became a soda jerk, and it was like the beginning of a responsible life after that. You know, that uh, just some person who I don't, I don't know the guy's name. And you know what? I'll probably forget to pass the story down. And even if I don't, my kids will forget to pass the story down. But um, he, that person getting my grandfather's life together is is really why my life exists in the way it exists right now. You know, mm-hmm. so there's just so many pieces that play in. I think it goes into, Leonard, what you talked about and wanting to be part of, of, of something bigger. And we are. You know, there's yeah. nothing we do that happens in a vacuum, um, and it's really hard to know where we made a difference. I don't think that in that gentleman's funeral that they talked about the impact he had in giving my my grandfather a job. You know, right. he probably just thought he was giving a kid a job. He didn't realize he was saving his life.
0: Yeah, and and really, what you hit on, Steve, is it's our challenge is how we measure. You know, Because, again, just, just like you said, I, I was much like you when I was young. You, know, you sort of wanted to make your mark and save the world and be this hero. And if you really get honest about it, if I really get honest about it, when I was younger, my motives were really so much all about me and what I wanted to do. Now, I thought it was a good thing that I wanted to do, but it was all about me and I. And hmm. now that I'm older and uh, not that terribly old, but older, uh, have have a couple of grandkids and whatnot. I recognize, you know, some of the greatest things that I actually can do are to sacrifice what I want to do for somebody else. And so in plain English, let's make it practical, right? I've got a, a seven year old grandson, eight year old now grandson, and a two year old granddaughter. Well, they don't care how much money I make. They don't care how successful I am in the workplace. They really don't care whether I'm bald or not. But if I go outside and play with them and run around the yard and do whatever for the next three or four hours, and I did it multiple times a week or so, they would think I was the greatest person on earth, you know. And so even greater so, than
1: Ruth, uh, Jim Burke.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. You know, and so it really, and that's why, you know, we, we started off talking about perspectives and, and that's why it's so important to keep in mind is to whom are we trying to live our lives for and whose perspective are we concerned about, you know, and how are we measuring You know, so I I really, and maybe age is a factor, maybe it is wisdom with age, or maybe it's just I'm I'm settling in and recognizing I'm not going to accomplish as much as what I one day had thought that I would, but I'm really recognizing the way that I spend my time in sacrifice really is a bigger reward than the time that I would have spent trying to build something up. And I know that's a horrible thing to say, especially in the United States. It's so counterculture. Uh, But Mm -hmm. it's true. I mean, even, you know, if we look at Mother Teresa, you know, nobody would say, gee, I wished I was like her and lived her lifestyle, Mm -hmm. but yet it was her lifestyle that made her as famous as what she is. And, you know, there lies a legacy that most people would say, yeah, (laughs) there's, there's somebody that we could admire because of the sacrifices she made. Well, I think it's
1: interesting too, you know, as you bring up the sacrifices and the notoriety, you know, I think that's one of the things that uh, for me, at least from my personal perspective, is notoriety is a currency you can't spend when you're dead, Yeah. you know, uh, because, you know, my my current perspective is that death is the end, you know, I I, I don't Mm – I don't really believe in a life after death. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. If it happens, please, I want you all to know that <laughs> if, if, mm-hmm. if when I die, I realize that I didn't, um, I will not complain about that. But, um, but the notoriety and those things, that's a currency you just really can't spend. And you know, I think back to like, um, I, I, I'm not sure I can remember exactly who said this, but um, I think it was actually Confucius that uh, was, was brought before um, a local leader. And he said something about, well, why don't you talk more about, um, about how to get into heaven and about the, you know, the life after and things like that. And Confucius said something along the lines of like, why would we spend time and effort in the life we aren't certain will happen when we have a life we are certain of right now? I'm sure he said it better and it was more eloquent, but it's, that's that's how I remember it. And I think that really to me is is one of the things to take away is that we don't know what comes later. and even those who claim to know, You only can go, you know, I I talk to people who are highly religious and they say, well, this is, there is a life after death and this is what it's like. But you you go a few questions into that and they're going to respond with, we really don't know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, even those that believe or have a knowledge of some sort of life after death, it it only goes skin deep and then it's an unknown, even for Mm -hmm. them. And, you know, I, I, but we do know that we're alive right now we do know that we have an opportunity to interact with people. We have an opportunity to express love we have for the people that we're around. Mm -hmm. You know, we have an opportunity for you to play with your grandkids, you know? Um, And I think the one thing I might push back a little bit on that is just the concept of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. That sometimes we feel like sacrifice brings about better results. And I, I'm not trying to say sacrifice is a bad thing, but just, that if we focus our life on love, on the things that we love and the people we love, like you love your granddaughter, you know, you're not out there sacrificing really, Yeah. you're, yeah. you're expressing love and having, and you're receiving it at the same time. And, um, and from that, you know, we'll grow a, a heritage and a legacy that will, that the emotion will continue long after the memory is gone.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you, you bring up a couple points that I want to hit on too before we move too far forward as well. Um, it, it, you know, you, you talk about the fact of the uncertainty of the future and we do have now. And that is definitely an area where I, as a younger man, was so caught up in. You know, for me, even, even just not even talking life and death, but just talking life itself, I had all of these plans of where I was going to be. You know, I, I had my you know, my short-term goal, my long-term goal, my 20-year goal, my 30-year goal, all of that. And uh, so I knew where I was wanting to go. The challenge though, especially as, a, as I was young at the time, the challenge for me was to be focused on where I was at the moment, because I was so future goal-oriented and focused on where I wanted to be in the future that I was somewhat miserable, not horribly bad, but somewhat miserable living where I was. And so it took some time. uh, Like I say, for me, I kind of recognized at the age of 30 that things weren't working out quite as I had planned. I had some pretty good plans that should have unfolded by that age and they didn't. Mm -hmm. And so that was a wake up call for me to recognize I was invested too much in my future to be Living the life that I need to be living, then, and so I've begun to shift that, and it's taken me a while to figure how to do it. Just I am a slow learner, I guess, if you want to call me that. <laughs> but it's taken me a while to live my life more fully now, and it's not this careless throw it to the wind hey, Yahoo. I am living carefree, but it's more deliberate, less uh, more deliberate now in some ways than what it was, and the biggest thing on the biggest thing is just being present, where I spent too much time focusing on where I wanted to be, where I really just wasn't present. And so I had some opportunities I may well have missed, because my mind was elsewhere, rather than being present. And so I, I, I guess that kind of goes back to that yeah. legacy conversation where, I, I, with you, you know, it's, The the sacrifices that I do make today really are certainly done out of love. I mean, yeah, I may rather sit there and read a book or rather do something other than watch Pokemon for the 50th time. Um, You know, so those are rather, those are preferences. But to your point, yeah, I I love my grandchildren. So I'm willing to make what technically really is maybe more of a minor sacrifice for their enjoyment and for their pleasure than I would for my
1: own. I think about, you know, as you talk about that, I remember my grandmother, she came and lived with us for the last um, six months of her life. She had had a stroke mm. and, um, you know, she did her best to really try and recuperate um, to the level that she could having had that, that stroke, but things never caught quite back to where they were at. And then <laughs> uh, she ended up having, um, and I'm not sure if it was... Uh, If it ever really was technically lung cancer. They thought she probably had lung cancer, but when they did the biopsy, uh, they accidentally um, cut her lung and uh, that led to pneumonia and that's eventually what killed her. But during those last six months of her life, she couldn't do a lot of the things that she used to do for us. But what I remember is we would bring her books and she would read them to us and she would read them over and over. What I loved about my grandmother you could get to the end of the book, and what do you do as a kid? You're like, well, that was great. Read it again. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know. You, and I th- I'm sure you've seen the same thing happen with Pokemon. You know, where they yes. can watch Pokemon, rewind it, and watch it again. And of course, this was pre VCRs and things. Um, and of course, no nobody even knows what a VCR is now. But it was pre Netflix, um, pre the ability to <laughs> digital <just watch>. age, <laughs> pre digital age, exactly. And and so you know, you'd sit down with a book uh, with her and then you'd ask her to read it again and read it again. And she would do that for hours. I'd have no memory of her ever saying no to reading a book to us. And I I can tell you that uh, for me and for my siblings, uh, that's our, that's our um, most tender memory. And even though there were so many things that she did before that point in her life, before those last six months, I mean, she, she started her own museum, uh, Mm. because she had, uh, you know, she grew up in, uh, well, she was born in 1899. And so you could imagine the things that she saw happen in her lifetime. You know, um, she, she had, uh, remembered her first move going from one house to another. She did that in a covered wagon. And then she talked about seeing the first automobile come into town. Um, and you know, so the t- <laughs> the telephone and all of these things she lived through watching you know from going to covered wagons to men walking on the moon but um and all of those the, the the experiences and things that she had had during that time what mattered to us is that she read books to us mm. in the last yeah. six months of her life and you know and I I think our legacy we maybe we want it to be um you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg type of thing where You know, she, she um, will have a legacy that's in print and will go on for a very long time. And it's certainly, we don't want to downplay that legacy, but it's not one that the rest of us can do. You know, we can't all be her, but we may be able to read books. (laughs) Yeah. And and that I don't think is any less valuable. Maybe I'm just saying that because I want my life to mean something.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But I'm not sure it's any less valuable. Right. No, I think you're totally right, Steve, and and that goes back to that measurement and how we measure, you know. So if we want to try and measure ourselves against, uh, you know, a, a, against a legacy like hers, we we may well fall short. But you know what? It that's not the legacy ultimately that matters to those folks that are around us, you know. And it, it just as you say, it's read another book or whatnot. Um, It it, kind of reminds me, I think it's Matthew McConaughey that one time said it in an interview, they were asking about his celebrity status and concern about losing his celebrity status, and it may not have been him, but I think it was. Um, And he made mention that, you know what, he, he didn't possess that himself anyhow, whether he was a celebrity or not was not something he could choose, it was something that was given to him. Mm-hmm. And I think that really kind of ties in somewhat with legacy as well. You know, we, we can influence what legacy we leave by, behind by being the person we are. Uh, but I don't know how much we really get to choose our own legacy anyhow. You know, it's mm-hmm. just living our lives the way that we need to live it, live it in a way of, of loving those around and fighting for causes we believe in, whatever it is we choose to do. Uh, and then I think the legacy itself is is pretty well formed by those people that we leave behind and they they form their own thoughts as to what that legacy is because well, they think, have that lens of perspective that we can't have.
1: And I think we have a very hard time with the concept that there will be many more things that we won't do than what we will do. <laughs> yes. It's almost infinite, the number of things that we won't get done in this lifetime.
0: Yes. <laughs> the reason I laugh is I've recently surrendered some hobbies that I recognize, you know what? They just don't fit in the priority priorities of my life anymore. Mm. And I love doing them. They're great fun. But I've never honed my skills well enough to make money at it, never honed my skills well enough to make a big investment of time, money, and effort into Improving those skills, and so I've I've resigned to the fact that yeah this is something that I did once or twice and enjoyed, but it's not something I can pursue based on what else that is important to me. And so I've had to just accept the fact I'm eliminating some things from my life that I enjoy,
1: um, but I'll never
0: never need to spend as much time trying to pursue as what I thought mm-hmm. I would at
1: one point. Well, I think of I think of Don Quixote fighting the windmills, (laughs) you know, the the whole story behind Don Quixote is that, you know, you've got this person that goes out and he's going to fight all the good fights. And, um, and he's going to come back, you know, this, this incredible victor and things. And, you know, we have so many windmills in our life and probably every, and I think that's the thing I love about Don Quixote. All he fought was windmills. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) He fought other things, but he never, he never was actually getting the rubber to meet the road to fight Mm. the fight that he hoped he was fighting. And I feel like for many of us, that ends up being the way we look at our lives, whether we're looking at them correctly or not, is that there are more failures than successes. There are more things undone that are done, but uh, it's not really what it's about. It's about what we were able to do. And even what we were able to do, we may not be very good at identifying the things that were successful. You know, I think um, the, the Buddhist perspective on pain is that, or, or I, I believe it was Buddha that said this, is that we we are in pain because we can't accept the reality as it is. Mm. That we want to change reality, and that's what causes us pain. That if we could accept our limitations, if we could accept our mistakes as it's just what happened. It is just the reality. There's no reversing going back in time and fixing it because real pain happens when you're when you're running against an absolute impossibility, like trying to fix things that happened in the past. Because they won't change, they're going to stay there. It's it's um, accepting that and finding a way that that we that we can move forward uh, with our our little wins. (laughs) And, yeah. and, and we can't do that until we just acknowledge the past and acknowledge the present. And this is where we're at. This is, this is the inventory that I have and this is what I can move forward with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is the inventory that I have. I, I like the way you said that Steve, because uh, it, it really does come down to sort of surrendering to the facts and embracing what we have and just uh, moving forward with that rather than fighting and resisting. Well, well several
1: years ago, and I—I I know I've told you this story before, but you know, my goal since high school was to become a great attorney, <laughs> to be a Ruth Bader Ginsburg <laughs> mm-hmm. type of person, you know, and and life happened. It hit me in ways I didn't expect. I mean, first off, I didn't come into this life expecting to be dyslexic, so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, you know, say, "Oh, reading is going to be a challenge for me." And while I love to argue things. Um, you know, being prepared to just go off to college, like everyone else did, it wasn't going to happen. I had to do several remedial English classes before I could (laughs) even write a good sentence, you know? Mm. Uh, and then by that time I was, um, you know, uh, had kids and I had family. And, and so when I started going through school to try and prepare even to, to be at a point that I could go to law school. Um, I already was was in a situation where I was trying to raise my kids. And so I did it at the same time. you know I, I got my uh, associate's degree and then moved on to my bachelor's degree. It only took me eleven years to do all that. <laughs> and then I was exhausted. You know, I wasn't ready at that point, and I didn't even know how to go on to law school because I still had kids, right? I'm raising them. how do i how do I stop my life for three years? to try and, to try and get into. And I didn't even know if I could be accepted to one. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, finally I, I got to this point, um, oh, probably about, oh, maybe five years ago where, um, I was accepted to an online law school and I, I did two and a half years and the work was so intense. So working and doing school and, um, having and a you family kept your children. Time, and I kept <laughs> yes. my children. Yes. And, <laughs> you didn't get rid
0: of those. So, yeah. And
1: really finding that I was just failing a little bit at every single one of those things, mm. you know, that I was kind of just spreading the failure out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> failing my marriage a bit, failing my kids a bit, failing my schoolwork a bit. Um, and then the one I wasn't paying attention to was, was my emotional health. Mm -hmm. And about two and a half years into it, uh, it it was on the point of a nervous breakdown. And I I, I attribute it to kind of like a sports injury. (laughs) You know, sometimes a person has has in mind that they're going to go to the NFL. They have the knowledge, the skills and ability, but then they get hit the wrong way. Their knee goes out and there's no coming back. Mm -hmm. You know that that's the end. Um, of that road. And that's, that's a hard thing to accept. And, you know, this is one that's easy for me to identify because, you know, it's, it was there, it's out there. I can tell you at what point I actually withdrew from law school. I can tell you at what point, you know, um, that uh, I was, I was really looking at my mental health from the perspective, can I live healthy with this? You know, can I, do I, what kind of um, professional help do I need to, you know keep anxiety attacks from coming on and things i'd never dealt with before but all that pressure had created um kind of a new mental health weather mm. <laughs> in my brain and um you, you know that in a lot of ways that's that's death in seeing the things that we plan to do what we hope to do and then realizing they're not going to happen mm-hmm. But whenever something dies, it de- decomposes, it fertilizes the soil. And even though yeah. it might have been really horrible, what happened there, flowers grow from that. You know, yeah. if you give it enough time, flowers grow from that. You know, going back to Jar- Garth Brooks, <laughs> the two dates of time and the little dash in between that I didn't know he stole from someone else. But, you know, the whole <laughs> the whole song is called Pushing Up Daisies. So yeah. even in the end, <laughs> there there is that. um that, that things grow out of decay. Yeah. And, and finding that, um, as, as we, as we wrestle through life and as we go towards that final end date, you know, and finding that meaning. And I'm sure, you know, this is, as we think about COVID right now, 200,000 people, we cross that line. That's 200,000 individuals, 200,000 souls. These aren't just numbers, you know? (laughs) Um, and that's, 200,000 families that are suffering and trying to figure out what to do with this loss and trying to figure out how to find meaning in something that on its face just seems meaningless.
0: Yeah. Well said, Steve. Um, If I can kind of close with this one thought and I hope I'm not going to over spiritualize and freak anybody out. But <laughs> you may, you mentioned about that 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 seed about dying and becoming fertilizer and the daisies growing and quoted Garth Brooks. But um, you know, from my background, there there is a passage of scripture in John 12:24 that says, "If a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, if it does not fall to the ground and die, it remains a single seed." But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And so uh, kind kind of, I guess, really, that's the legacy we're talking about. You know, uh, uh, again, so much of our living legacy is that surrendering and embracing where we are, what we have, what resources we have, and what we can do, and moving forward with those, And, and living in the moment. And again, not that it's a spontaneous, whimsical living in the moment, but living with purpose in the moment and being present is certainly one of my big takeaways.
1: And I think maybe just to add two other little quick things, one is we've talked about some really heavy subjects today, and yes. um, I, I want to make sure that if, if anyone <laughs> is going through uh, you know, those, those difficult emotional uh, stresses that have to do with the topics that we've talked about today. Um, especially I want to remind anyone that, you know, I know, I know there's a lot of stress (laughs) on the world right now. The world is stressed. I feel like we're rubber band, just ready to, to burst or to spring back or whatever it's going to do. Uh, but if any of you are in that situation and and you are considering anything, you know, like, uh, self-harm of any kind, you know, this is, this is the time to reach out and get some help. Um, There are are a number of resources available to you. You can walk into any emergency room and uh, even in COVID (laughs) times, you can walk into any emergency room (laughs) and you can let people know how you're feeling. You don't have to worry about your insurance. That can be worried about later on, uh, but you can walk in and you can get help. Um, And uh, of course you can always reach out to us and we'll do our best to to uh, direct you to the correct resources as well uh, because we care about you, other people care about you as well. <laughs> and, and I know this was a heavy topic, so that's why I, fe- I felt like maybe it was make sense to bring that up. Uh, the other thing I want to remind you all is voting has started in many states. We talked about voting in the past on one of our podcasts. Um, we mentioned vote.gov. You can go to vote.gov and figure out how to register to vote. Um, But one thing I want to say is if you put this off, you may lose the opportunity uh, because depending on where you're at uh, there, there may be a requirement to get the registration in uh, prior to election date. So um, if you haven't done that already, vote.gov, make sure you get on there, figure out how to vote, get registered. Uh, We need your voice.
0: All right, Steve. Thank you. And yeah, just to echo quickly what you had said too, uh, obviously we'd love to hear from you. We're not licensed psychologists or licensed counselors. We can be a good listening ear though, if you do need a friend or someone to shout at, feel free. And as Steve said, we'd certainly be glad to try to direct you to some resources if we can be of source to you. And so feel free to reach out to us at furloughedmailbox at gmail.com, furloughed mailbox at gmail.com and we would be glad to follow up with you in some way shape or fashion so with that folks as steve talks about the stress of the times it is definitely here and uh, unemployment's running dry for those of us that are out here looking for work or looking for a return to work as it might be uh, so just Continue to be present. Continue to think about what you do have rather than what you don't have. And again, reach out to a friend if you need to as well. With that, we'll wrap up this episode. So hopefully we didn't depress you too bad and you'll be back next week. We promise we'll be a little more upbeat. We'll make it happier. (laughs)
1: Leonard's going to tell a really funny joke. It's going to be so worth it.
0: (laughs) I I will will do a lot of research and find a good joke next week. But until then, we'll we'll say thank you again for joining us and goodbye. And also, don't forget to shout out to our sponsor, UpwardsUnlimited.com, Upwards, W-O-R-D-S, Unlimited.com. And their specialty is helping teams and people improve their conversations, connections, collaboration, and community. So with that, we'll say a final goodbye. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.